So, Connor, what's new? What's new? Well, uh, I recently spent several days uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons with Soren, and uh, and Dave, I'm here to report that the, the technology has changed for Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. So what they got like a a, a D twenty one die or <laughs> yeah <laughs> in a miracle of geometry they have made come up with with a twenty one sided die no they uh I have to imagine this was a response to COVID at least in part but um, yeah. the the good people at Wizards of the Coast who published Dungeons and Dragons have a set of online tools called D and D Beyond if you're a D and D player you're rolling your eyes because I'm probably the last person to have figured this out but um, mm-hmm. It's a very clever set of tools they've built to kind of cut through a lot of the paperwork and bureaucracy of the Dungeons and Dragons game. Um, mm-hmm. So in the tool, you can, for example, uh, roll a die, and then everyone else can see that die roll at the same time that you can. So if you're playing mm-hmm. over FaceTime or playing over Zoom or something, that you can do that. Um, if you have your character sheets loaded up in the computer, you can, and you need to do a roll for sleight of hand, for example, you can just click on the sleight of hand ability of your character and it will automatically do the die roll for you uh, uh, with, with okay. all the modifiers and whatever else. So like I say, just, um, and it was, I was weary, leery of this, these online tools because I was worried that they were going to kind of turn D&D more into a video game, you know what I mean? Automate it too much. But it yeah. seems like they've done just the right amount of work to kind of streamline the traditional game experience um, yeah. without kind of, uh, you still get the feeling of like clacky dice rolling on tables when something dangerous happens. And that's kind of what I'm here for. So it was great. It was great. Okay. So you are rolling real dice or is it like virtual dice? Virtual. The... Yeah. But okay. the virtual dice make a clacking sound, which is satisfying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's right. good. No, I, I can imagine there is that you know, the, the nostalgia and all that of the book and, and, you know, the, the tactile, uh, feel of the, uh, the dice and all that. It's, uh, do you, uh, so you don't miss that? Uh, no, I don't miss that at all. And, uh, and in fact, having tried to be the dungeon master for three nine-year-olds at the same time, your, your desk is basically covered in reference books. And you've oh, got wow. a sheet of paper next to you trying to keep track of everything that's going on. And then how many hit points does a bugbear have? And then what's the armor class of a pseudo dragon and all this other stuff. And to have all that stuff uh, as easily accessible as a Google search is uh, a significant improvement on the experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, that part so like. do you, is it a service you pay for or, or is it, they make their money it, in other ways? Yeah, it, they've, they've, uh, so you can buy digital versions of the books. That's number one. Okay. And then that locks that content in the tool so that, uh, okay. for example, you cannot create a forest gnome unless you have purchased the player's handbook digitally. So that's mm-hmm. one way they get you. And then the other way they get you is, uh, they charge you money, a subscription for being able to run, for example, more than six characters at a time or being able to unlock certain features of, uh, the campaigns that you create and stuff like that. So um, a little bit complicated to navigate into kind of like, it is not intuitive the way that they want to take mm-hmm. your money. Uh, but once you figure out their internal logic, it's uh, it, it kind of makes sense and um, doesn't bother me at all to pay for the privilege because, because uh, I get yeah. so much value out of it. So yeah, fully endorse uh, D&D Beyond. Okay. And, and do you think there are still the purists that it's like, they got to do it the old, old school way? Yeah. Among them, my son, 
who is not interested in using the computer assisted tools. He would much rather have physical dice in his hand and be rolling those and, uh, yeah. and then have me take care of the paperwork, which of course I'm happy uh, to do now that I've been yeah. aided by these robots. Right? So, okay. Yeah. That's what's going yeah, because I, I can imagine there's like value in, uh, or like a nerd cred thing of knowing how many hit points a goblin has or whatever, and you know, you, like you almost commit that stuff to memory instead of uh, like uh, offloading it to uh, a computer to just worry about that. Yeah, correct. And it, well, although it's also true that I'm here, I'm I, I'm inadvertently memorizing very obscure facts about uh, halflings. And yeah. uh, and the rogue class uh, level structure, um, okay. so you kind of can't avoid some of that stuff. Uh, but <laughs> you know what I found is that, especially when playing with with a nine year old, uh, what I found is that uh, being a stickler for the rules is less important than just uh, telling a good story. And so that's yes. what we're here for. So yeah, that's that's why you're there. Yeah. Right. Yep. That's right. Yep. Okay. So. Um, and hey, speaking of good stories, I, I over the over the over the recent break, I uh, I spent a lot of time with my with my Apple Pencil, and yeah. uh, and practicing with uh, writing on the Apple Pencil on the tablet. This is something I haven't really done in a while. Um, yeah. But now I suddenly find myself doing it all the time, and it has significantly improved my note taking. Huh. So, um, especially when you're using a computer, right, or a tablet. Your draw is like, oh, I'm going to type because it'll just be faster and it'll be better. But I'm, I'm telling you that the the act of committing something to memory and the act of active listening yes. it is a different experience doing it with a pencil as opposed to typing it on a computer. And I couldn't tell you why, but it is different. Yes. Yeah, no, there, there are studies that, that, I guess, prove that. And then there's the uh, uh, also the the signaling that you do that that like you know it's it's like oh is that person like checking their email while i'm talking to them it's like no i'm taking notes honestly you know yeah. honest i'm, yeah, I'm you right. know and that's right uh where yeah yeah i'm literally leaning forward to go pay but up closer attention to what you're saying yes yeah yes. i totally agree yeah, that's right. yeah so what, what are you using for the the note-taking app i'm using a i'm using a, a popular slash unpopular choice i feel like the hallmark of a good app is this dave yeah. It's an app that has tens or hundreds of thousands of downloads and everyone is furious about huh. because that they want it to work. To, they want it to work. Exactly. And so that's a bunch of people who are so invested in this app that they are angry that it doesn't do things that they want it to do. Hmm. Uh, and that's anyway. So I followed that, I followed that rule and I found good notes and sure enough, it's like, it is good. It is enraging with certain things, but, um, but for the most part, it does exactly what I needed to do. Good notes. It's great. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that because I, I just, uh, you know, I had a Kindle uh, Oasis that I recently just sold on eBay yesterday and uh, because I got a Kindle Scribe, uh, which is like, you know, it's e-ink. It's, it's like a 10-inch screen, which is like huge. Um, and I was like, I'll get it. If I don't like it, I could return it. And because, uh, you know, having the bigger screen real estate is kind of nice. But um, like I, I just I was just getting sort of tired of like I want to handwrite the notes, uh, but I wanted to do it digitally. And I, I don't want to go further into the Apple ecosystem and, you know, get a uh, you know pencil and a uh, and a uh, iPad and all that. So 
Um, it's like I figure I'll do a two for one. I'll, I'll upgrade it. And uh, I really enjoy the, the scribe uh, because it's the, the tactical or the tactile feel of the pencil on the screen is it feels like you're writing on paper with a pencil, like a number two pencil. And it's, and it's not like, I don't know about uh, the Apple pencil, but um, you know, just like I've had one that is like, it's like you're writing on glass, like a glass screen and it just doesn't feel quite the same. Uh, And, and it feels like the pixels are like underneath the glass where it's like the ink is right on the surface of the, the screen. It feels like. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I and I I did uh apprise my options. Um yeah. and finally decided that uh like one of these e ink writers uh uh while like remarkable is another yep. is another popular one. Um yep. I I'm intrigued by that and I really and I know exactly what you mean about this the feeling of like a piece of plastic against slick glass is not is not satisfying yeah. to the senses. Um, on the other hand, as you say, I've already sunk all this money into these tools, and so I might as well <laughs> figure out how to yeah. use them. Maybe I can. Maybe later I can persuade myself to go buy like a proper ink scribe, something like that. Yeah. But yeah. Sure. And well, the 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 cool thing for like the Kindle scribe is that it's like that the price has dropped. Like 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 right now they have Black Friday deals. It's like two thirty nine uh, for the mm-hmm. entry model, and there's mm-hmm. no subscription you got to pay for you know like i think with remarkable you got to pay for a subscription to use your service on top of it and yeah you got to pay for the, you got to pay for everything on that thing you got to pay for the pencil you got to pay for the subscription you got to pay i mean they're they're uh yeah that's how they get you that's how they get you yeah yeah and it's and it's and it's not and then you know it's not like they give away the the handle and sell you the blades it's like you know the the remarkable itself is like several hundred dollars whereas I'm yeah. sure you know yeah. Kindle subsidizes it, assuming you're going to buy books and they're going to make money that way on the back end. So, right, yeah, but, that's right. But I'm pleased with it. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. And um, the other, the other thing is, there's a book that just came out that I really enjoyed. Uh, it's called Julia. Hmm. And um, so you remember the book 1984 by George Orwell? Oh. Is this the story of 1984 told from the point of view of Julia? Yes. Wow. Yes. All right. And it is uh, is written by this lady. It's it's a brand new book, and I highly recommend it. Like if you like the the darkness of you know 1984 that is like hard to replicate in you know modern books that I've seen, it's like like pitch perfect with uh, with that. You know, and it's the same, you know, same character, same universe. And you, you you hear what's going on in her head as opposed to Winston Smith's head. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yep. I love it. Highly recommend it. it. It's it's not uh it's very uh it has some adult stuff in it. Uh mm-hmm. so you know, just just I don't want anybody to blush when they read it, uh and, and curse me, but um <laughs> but uh it's in there. Uh so yeah. But good, good, good. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, this week, uh, geez, we're, we're going to dive a little bit with uh, talk about um, uh, Risk Five and open source and, uh, you know, government barrier raising with that. We're going to talk about um, 
we're also going to be talking about um, uh, the the AI executive order that came out and and uh, get uh, get our take on that. And then um, we also are going to talk about um, improvements to uh, Windows 11 and how we can apply that to the next version of RAL. So, oh, all yeah. right, all right, a little competitive analysis. I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so to get all that and uh, and all that good stuff, where do we need to send people? Yeah, we can send them to uh, dgshow.org. Uh, that's D as in Dave, G as in Gunner, show.org. Yep, yep. And um, so, you know, cutting room floor, we got some good stuff. Um, there's a, uh, uh, you know how you always have like, uh, you know, the government selling surplus property and all that? Um, yeah, sure. There isn't. Yeah, so there's an uh, a surveillance van that was NASA's uh, that somebody was selling, and um, yeah, so it it twenty six a uh, uh, little over twenty six grand uh, they're selling it for. So imagine this like custom like seventies looking kind of van, but just like decked out with all kind of surveillance equipment. I don't know what why NASA has to surveil stuff, but I guess they didn't need it anymore. Um, but it's it's there uh, and a retractable roof too. So uh, you know w- oh, that's what's nice. not to want. Yeah, yeah. I mean that sounds handy for uh, if you are trying to snuff out news of the alien arrival. This mm-hmm. would be perfect for black bag jobs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then um, and then also uh, other government news. The uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission. You can listen to this in your van if you want. Um, they just dropped a new album uh, on uh, uh, like uh, product safety. So they they have um, it's it's called uh, the album is called We're Safety Now, Haven't We? And it's uh, six genres uh, spanning safety focused songs, um, and uh, I guess seven if you count the one that's also got a Spanglish version. And uh, so there's a K-pop number. There's uh, so. Uh, reggaeton uh, about uh, smoke alarms, um, and it's it's all all good. Uh, you could check it out. And That's then uh, the, the last, yeah, the, go ahead. I tell you, the, the my favorite thing about this uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission album, mm-hmm. every one of them, all bangers. Yep, yep. all bangers. Yeah, yep. And it's, it's, that's how they roll. Yeah. And then uh, the, lastly, we got the uh, ASIC necklace. Uh, so it's it's uh, how would you describe it? Uh, I would describe it a a, uh, a oversized amulet uh, in the Flava Flav style from Public Enemy, yeah. Um, yeah. but the amulet, rather than being uh, gold or, or silver clock. or clock, it's uh, it's instead an ASIC wafer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, great. very very hip hop, um, and and it's. Uh, like I want to see this guy do one of a like a wrestling like a pro wrestling championship belt, but with an ASIC in it. Oh yeah, 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 for good. real. Yeah, that yeah. would be. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, oh, uh, we got a little bit of follow up. Um, friend of the show, uh, Dwight Chamberlain. Uh, he mentioned uh, he's like, oh hey, have you ever heard of the Ben and Mark show? And I'm like, what? Uh, and so I guess you know from. Um, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen, they have their own podcast now called The Ben and Mark Show. 
We'll get our lawyers on that. I know the robot lawyers. Well, we'll yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like our, our patented uh, uh, intellectual properties. I, I just feel violated. So it's it's just yeah, two guys exactly. talking about technology and trends and I guess weird stuff they see on the internet. We we we, uh, we I feel like they we have an implicit trademark on uh, on the two first names plus show formulation. Yeah, especially when it comes to podcasts about like. Uh, obscure internet phenomena. <laughs> you would think, we, you know, it's like we're 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 getting disrupted here. Uh, yeah, that's right, and and disrupted by significantly more wealthy competitors. I should I should know. Like, do they have anything better to do? Um, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and well, the answer is um, no. they're via, they're PC. Apparently not. No, they don't yeah. have anything better to do. No. Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah and then uh so. The other thing, uh, Risk Five. Are you are you familiar with that? I am. I am extremely familiar with Risk Five. Yes. Yeah. So this is the this is the emergent microchip architecture uh, that is now suddenly gaining popularity in part because of its openness. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, so back in the day, uh, uh, if you remember your Unix wars, right before Windows NT comes along and Wintel, right. Uh, all the computers that were the workstations, like your sons, your Silicon Graphics, the DEX, and all that, were RISC-based uh, processors, reduced instruction set computing. And then um, all of a sudden, like the Intel and Windows, uh, Microsoft, they team up with uh, you know Windows NT, uh, totally disrupt that market. And just the volume that that Intel was able to kick out with with Microsoft to really put the risk architecture on the back burner. And uh, now, and, and I've always been a fan of risk uh, just because of the simplicity of it. Uh, and because you could make the chips very, very simple, right? Uh, because you have a smaller number of instructions where uh, with CISC or with the x86 architecture, you have a lot more of complicated instructions or like one instruction can do like 10 different things at one time as opposed to having uh, a simpler chipset or a simpler instruction set that can do things in more steps, but it's it's a lot simpler, which allows a chip to be smaller, which allows it to go faster, uh, and you know, uh, and and uh, you you could really uh, crank up the clock speed on it because it's it's smaller and it doesn't give off as much heat because it's so simple. Um, but anyhow, it's like x86 dominated for the longest time. And uh, Risk Five came along, uh, which is an open source implementation, open hardware, uh, where it's it's all it's it's basically a uh, 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 like a Berkeley like uh, license, right? It's not like the GPL that's like a viral uh, open source license, and it, and so people could take the Risk designs. They could take the basic things. They can make their own chips. They can make their own accelerators. They can keep things proprietary if they want. They can give it back, uh, like an Apache license. Um, but what's interesting, though, is that that's sort of like disrupting a lot of U.S. foreign policy towards China, where um, you know, with with Intel and uh, AMD having a uh, you know, the dominant market share with x86 processors, um, they could, you know, the U.S. from a sanction standpoint could really, you know, hurt China from that perspective. Whereas with uh, RISC-V, 
being uh, a viable architecture that is going from like controllers to you know microcontrollers to uh, storage controllers and other things like that to actual being like full blown like processors and computer systems um, that is causing uh, U.S. legislators to like object to it and and is even to the point where the Risk Five organization they move from uh, the United States to Switzerland and now it's a Swiss based company to not get in the middle of like U S versus China sort of things. And uh, what's interesting is um, uh, their, their uh, representative, Mike Gallagher, the chairman of the house select committee on China. Uh, he is saying that um, he, he would like to have the department of commerce uh, require any American person or company to receive an export license prior to engaging with the PRC uh, entities on RISC-V technology. And one quote that he has is, I fear that our export control laws are not equipped to deal with the challenge of open source software, whether advanced semiconductor designs like RISC-V or in the area of AI, and a dramatic paradigm shift is needed. So there's a lot to unpack there, but what, what's your take on this, uh, Gunnar, from like uh, open source and, you know, should it be should it be open, laissez-faire, or... Uh, you know, what, what, what would you do if, as a diplomat? Yeah. Um, so if uh, there's a lot of layers to this, right. But like, let's just take the the plain language of, of what he said there at the end is I fear our export control laws are not equipped to deal with the challenge of open source software. Um, you will, I mean, the export control laws are, uh, which are meant to protect domestic technologies, the best way to protect, a dom- if you want to protect a domestic technology, which right, which is to say not let other people get access to it, is uh, here's a good place to start, is not putting it under an open source license, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this, is the, this is the government trying to impose additional constraints on, uh, on a, a decision that, a, that the private company has already made, right? So it's already going to be an uphill battle, right? Um, and, uh, I think that, uh, I mean, of course the U S is entitled to do whatever it wants and it could go put, you know, draconian export control laws in place around, uh, whether it's risk five or AI or encryption. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and in the end, I'm not sure that it will matter even a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Now, what they said earlier, what he said in the first quote that you read, which is, uh, require any American person or company to receive an export license prior to engaging with the People's Republic of China entities on risk five technology specifically. That is like that's a that's a standard, like that's a that is a standard trade policy kind of a thing that people can do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to go work with this person, then you got to go get some paperwork signed before you're able to work with this person. All kinds of stuff falls in this category, right? Um, munitions, encryption, all kinds of other stuff, right? Um, so that's not totally where it is. I think what's interesting is the uh, him invoking the open source part of this seems really important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think I think that's a red herring. I don't think it matters very much whether it's open sourced or whether it's proprietary. The, the thing that they are trying to control is the PRC's access to this particular technology. And it just so happens that open source makes that much more difficult than if it was a proprietary technology. But in you know, but the rules that they want to put around it are the same. Yeah. So what but what do you think about like, you know, it's like, oh, you have to have a license. Like, does somebody have to have a license? Like, think about like the Linux kernel, 
right? Where mm-hmm. it's it's like it's almost like uh, you know the Git repository for the Linux kernel is almost like a Dropbox uh, yeah. or a dead drop for mm-hmm. a code, right? Yeah. And and yeah. so it's like you don't it's it's very low barrier from a permission standpoint where it's like um, what does it mean by engaging with the PRC, right? Where yeah. it's like, oh, we're working on a community or we're mm-hmm. working with a community. We're not working with this company, right? And then yeah. the other company that may be Chinese could take that technology and use it. Uh, they're welcome yeah. to do it. But yeah. um, but I could imagine it's like, well, what happens? You, know, you would then need a license if maybe money is changing hands or somebody is paying somebody to develop that technology. But if it's like, people in their own companies just like you know scratching their own itch and all that and being able to you know put it out there for others to use there shouldn't be any harm in that yeah yeah i mean there's a, i mean there's some the the precedent here is i mean one of the reasons why so there's certain kinds of technologies which are normally under export control restrictions but if they are open source technologies that is if the code is already available then it doesn't make sense to put an export restriction on it and so they basically call a mulligan on themselves and say, okay, well, if it's open source, we're not going to regulate it in that way, right? We'll only, mm-hmm. we'll only regulate the proprietary technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how they've threaded the needle in the past. Um, like I said here, I think the, and I'm sure that there is some Commerce Department ruling, or I mean, here, this is a congressman t- saying what he thinks the Commerce Department should do. So I don't think that he's probably not using uh, legally sound language, right? But right. to your point about like um, uh, requiring a license to engage with the PRC, I am sure that there is a whole set of administrative law over somewhere in the Commerce Department that will tell you exactly what engaging with the PRC might mean, right? Mm-hmm. And you're right, it's like money changing hands, contracts getting signed, stuff like that. Um, so the details, I, I think the details matter as far as this goes, but the I think overall, I mean, the challenge for all countries, uh, and, you know, in this case, it's the U.S. and China, but the challenge for all countries is that um, in a world of open source software or of open hardware designs, um, keeping a secret is not a great way of maintaining a competitive advantage. Yeah, it's not a long-term. Not a long-term strategy, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. And that would, and by the way, that would be true. uh, That's true for proprietary or open source software. Yep. Right. Oh, famously, like making technology proprietary, the F-35, several rocket designs uh, has not prevented China from benefiting from them. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, I would say, uh, like I say, I think the open source part of the story is kind of a red herring. I think it's really much more about um, the challenge of maintaining a technology advantage in a world where it is very easy for information to be disseminated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, for sure. Yeah, and then yeah, the other the other thing that happened was the AI executive order. Uh, yeah. And and did, did you get a chance to study that? I have not. I have not studied it deeply. Although I did really enjoy the interview on hard, the Hard Fork podcast with a uh, with a uh, Altman, Sam Altman. Oh, um, okay. They, they well, interviewed. They interviewed him two. Yeah, they interviewed him two days before he was fired. Um, and it was as a product guy, it was very interesting to listen to him talk about this product because um, yeah. he definitely thinks like a product manager. Um, yeah. But anyway, I digress. 
Uh, no, I did not read the executive order very carefully. Oh, what, what did you learn? Uh, well, and it's, you know, to me, like when executive orders come out, it's like, you know, it was interesting. It's like, I, I didn't study it that closely knowing that it's, well, one, it was extremely long. Uh, and then, but the other thing too, was that there was, there was a criticism that I actually did study um, that, and I had the link to it in the show notes. And it was actually, I, I don't want to say it's scathing, uh, but it did raise a lot of really good points where, you know, like, and the first thing that I thought of that that uh, the author brought up is that an executive order is uh, it's not legislation. And, you know, first of all, it could be overturned by the next president. And so, you know, and that's not good whenever uh, you can have things change very quickly. And, uh, you know, when people are in the private sector trying to like have some sort of sense of stability in terms of, you know, what the guidance should be. And, you know, it's like, should they wait out uh, with the next, you know, the, the next term for the president and they overturn it or whatever. Um, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing he said was that the executive, executive orders by general in general are like quick and dirty, right? So they're done very, I don't want to say hastily, but there's, uh, uh, it's not done in a transparent sort of way, as opposed to like, like on the floor of Congress where people are debating, uh, things and all that. And and um, there's less accountability in there in terms of who said what and who did what, where this executive order just pops out. And um, they he he did some other things too that in the criticism saying that it's like, well, why are, why is AI so magical? You know, we didn't do this for microprocessors. Um, you know, we didn't do it for, you know, calculators, all, you know, all the other things that have come out. Uh, we didn't do it for the internet, right? Um, and and he also said that it comes from the angle of a uh, uh, where like the internet was like this vision of hope and this this hopeful creative thing that's going to change the world where um, the the AI executive order comes from like a doom and gloom like this is going to you know everything's going to be ruined because AI and we need to control it instead of the uh, you know, you got your internet and let's let everybody have the freedom to figure stuff out. And as people discover real problems, we'll fix them. Um, but, you know, that was, you know, I, I just thought that it was a, a very interesting take on, uh, and, and it was it was also a very long uh, criticism too. But, but what do you think in terms of like executive orders in general compared to legislation? So executive order, I mean, those are basically signaling devices, right? Yeah. Um, and you're right, it doesn't, doesn't, it's not binding in the way that legislation is binding and it's rarely as deeply considered as legislation might be, right? For that reason. Um, I think that it's a, uh, it has signaling value, right? It means that the administration is taking seriously what it perceives to be risk from AI development and feels motivated to do something. And I think that is a signal to the market that like this will not go unregulated and that um, regulating it further is certainly on the table. Um, and I have to imagine that at least part of the EO, I mean, what, what few parts of it that I read was, you know, meant to at least inspire a public conversation about what kind of regulations may or may not be necessary. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so no, okay, fine. Um, from what I understand, yeah, it doesn't have very many teeth and also some of the constraints that are put in place are kind of silly. Right. Um, but, uh, I do think that like dismissing, using the old like yeah everybody panicked when you know 
pencils got erasers. Everybody panicked that everybody would forget how to, you know, there's lots of little tropes that come out when a, when a new technology emerges and feels threatening. Um, yes. And it seems like more of that where it's like extremely dismissive and kind of like, oh, these people clutching their pearls over the future of AI. But AI does feel qualitatively different than something like the internet or uh, or something like, you know, microprocessors in the sense yeah. that um, it it has certain qualities that these other things don't have. Um, there's a, there's like the anthropomorphic, I wish I was a philosopher and I could like enumerate these carefully, but I think part of it is the anthropomorphism, the, the extent to which the work of the AI can be confused with human work, I think is significant. And we talked about this a bunch on the show, right? Um, and I also think that we are only just now learning about the consequences of having these tools. And I think a little bit of caution could go quite a long way in making sure that we don't accidentally make several mistakes. Um, and I mean, and Sam Allman actually talks about this in his interview, which is, you know, the interview, of course, is like super self-serving and um, yeah. he was obviously advancing an agenda, but I think there was some wisdom in what he said was they are intentionally rolling out the capabilities that they have internally. They're rolling them out slowly because they feel like um, AI is a co-creation with society and culture that is they have to release some of this technology and then society and culture has to adapt and all the more technology comes out and then it and and then we have to you know create compensating systems right so and even sam altman himself is an advocate for some kind of regulation right um for this reason um because it feels like you know dumping the full freight of ai disruption on society all at once could be you know he would consider irresponsible on the other hand he, one could also say that what he's doing is pulling up the ladder behind him. Um, exactly. and any regulation is going to, any regulation is going to increase. Um, the, uh, it, <clears throat> any regulation is going to increase the, uh, uh, the barrier to entry for any future competitors. So I don't know. I, basically I, I am enjoying the fact that we are talking about it. I think that's maybe the most important thing. This is a, this is a real thing that we should be, talking about figuring out what risks need to get mitigated now, what risks can be mitigated later. And I think, you know, if for the first time in history, if we can actually roll out a technology in a careful and responsible way, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think in defense of the executive order too, it's, uh, you know, it's like, Hey, we got to put something out there. And like you said, start having the conversation uh, because if we wait for something legislatively to happen, given how divided things are, it's, you know, it's like, we're going to be like gray goo uh, by the time, you know, that they, they, they come to any sort of consensus or agreement on anything. Yeah. It's hard to write legislation when you're covered in paper clips. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, so wrapping up, um, so windows 11, uh, that they, they have a, uh, and I guess a new feature that uh, allows you to play a, a video game while it's installing. Does it really take that long to install? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's my first question is like, okay, well, if I had enough spare programming engineering cycles where I could go embed a video game in my installer, I don't know, I'm, I might do something crazy, like ask my installer team to go make that installer go faster. <laughs> like, it's 
instead yeah. of trying to build Tetris. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Call me crazy. Well, and that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, uh, you know, to me, it's like, that's like, you're fixing the problem the wrong way. And, you know, I've just been spoiled by Ralph for over a you know decade uh, in terms of, you know, it's like you do the update and while, while you're working. Right. And then it's like, Oh, okay. It's like the, something changed with the kernel. So I got to reboot and then you reboot and you're back in. Um, but it's like, disappointingly easy and like uneventful where even on a Mac to do an update on the Mac, it's like spin in, you got to walk away for a while and it could take like a half hour to update and, and windows is even worse. And, and when it's so bad that you got to actually put a game in it, um, you know, think of the the productivity loss uh, that's happening right there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think the, um, and, and I go, and I think my real answer is the, um, as you say, like the fact of waiting for an install in the first place, like that's where the, that's where the work, that's where the work should go. Um, yeah. and so doing things like, uh, playing with different flavors of immutability to make upgrading, uh, just a matter of like a reboot. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. by the way, reducing boot times would be a great way also to improve the installer experience. There's lots of stuff that you can do. Um, although I admire that, uh, like, I do like them thinking out of outside of the box and kind of expanding the, um, what it's possible to do. Right. Nice. Um, cause it would never have occurred to me to put a video game in this installer, but like, that's a cute idea. It's, I mean, it's great. I'm sure they got a few articles written about windows 11 as a result and, you know, good for them. It's great. Well, you know, there's a flight simulator inside of Excel. <laughs> yes, I did. What is up with the engineering surplus over at Microsoft? That's what I want to know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's it's like that's yes. Um, so if so, that 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 aside though, uh, for for RAL ten, what what would you what what game would you put in the installer? Oh man, what game would I put in the installer for RAL ten? Um, it would be some civilization. Oh yeah, I mean civilization is <laughs> an easy one. Um, I think you know it would be cool to have like. Uh, I feel like the, for a rel 10, it would be something like Monument Valley. You know what I mean? Like an Escher style puzzle solver, right? I think that would be mm. kind of fun. I think that would be on brand for rel. Yeah. 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 To me, it would be, it, you'd, you would do the, the, you'd use like the VI cursor keys, you know, mm-hmm. the, yeah, mm-hmm. to control yeah, it. Right. Oh, wait. No, I got a better answer. No, the, the game that would be embedded in the RHEL 10 installer uh, would be a uh, Red Hat Certified Engineer Certification Exam. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can install it while you're installing it. Okay, um, that's right. Yeah. In Ouroboros. That's right. Yeah. There you go. Nice. All right. Well, that's, that's what we got. Um, so... Gunner, if if people need to uh, you know figure out how to uh, um, you know build their own ASIC necklace or or pro wrestling belt uh, and and uh, uh, they want to pick up their own uh, surveillance van from NASA, uh, where should we send them? Yeah, um, if you would like to uh, surveil your friends or uh, listen to that banger of an album by the Consumer Product Safety Commission, you can go to dgshow.org. That's D and Dave. Cheese and Gunner show.org. Awesome. Okay, Gunner. Well, thanks. And thanks, everybody, for listening. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>